Hey, engine professionals, machinists, and enthusiasts, welcome to the Engine Professional Podcast. of the Engine Professional Podcast. My name is Steve Fox, along with my co-host Chuck Lynch. Chuck, how are we doing today? Good, and good to actually see you face-to-face, Steve. Um, you know, so people kind of understand, we work in different parts of the country, and um, once in a while we have the opportunity to actually set face-to-face and work. So, Not too many day. people excited to see me face-to-face, Chuck, so... <laughs> <laughs> uh. But no, it is glad, you know, we've been busy trying to get some things done. It's obviously show season coming around the corner here pretty soon. So getting everything lined up for that and making sure everything's uh, headed in the right direction, um, <clears throat> getting getting the booth ready and all that stuff. So we're, we've been busy the last couple of months, so that's why we've been kind of uh, absent from the podcast world. But we're glad to be back. Uh, we got a lot, of, lot going on in this episode, so I think Chuck will just start. We'll just jump right into it right away if that's good with you. Then we'll start with our Ask the Tech Questions um, section to our that we get from our tech line. And one of the questions that's kind of common here lately, Chuck, is can you make a head too smooth for an MLS gasket? Yeah, that's become more common. And I think it speaks to we're getting the message out about surface finish and roughness, flatness, waviness, all of those things. So... Now, the way we traditionally machine, I would say in, in, in the machine shops, automotive machine shops, a lot of us will use fly cutters and a single point insert and so forth. We don't use some, a follow-up uh, lap or grind like the OEs might where they have a diamond-plated plate and they hit that surface. Uh, we just don't do that. We use a single insert and so forth. So the likelihood that we could achieve a surface that's too smooth um, is just extremely unlikely. Um, it's, it's a good question. It's very important that you care about surface finish, but the likelihood that we would get to a level that is so flow or so low that the gasket sealing materials, they have like a cold seal material applied and that that could actually be, um, displaced improperly where you would have burnishing, um, things of that nature. We're just not going to do that. So wouldn't be too greatly concerned. I would be more concerned about that we still didn't get smooth enough. And I would hope that the guys are asking that question have a way to measure that. Exactly. That's that's the critical component. And I think as we have more people paying attention to cylinder bore finish, and I think that uh, the industry's done a great job of doing that more and more recently. Um, got to give, uh, you know, Lake kudos on that. He's constantly uh, hammering that nail. And the, if you have the ability to do that, then you can measure other surfaces or seal surfaces on your cranks, your journals, and so forth. So it's a good thing. It gets us all moving in the right direction. Yeah. And I know that tool's not cheap or that measurement device is not cheap for something like that, but it it can be used for many different things. That's what I was trying to get at. Exactly. So multifunctional. Exactly. Sticking with the head gasket theme, uh, our second question is, when does a thicker head gasket make sense? 
Uh, and is it different for gas and diesel markets? You know, absolutely different for gas and diesel. Um, you know, and, and I, I get the question on the tech line, or we all do, you know, hey, I milled this diesel head, X number of thousands, um, is, is a thicker head gasket a good idea? And if you think about, well, it could help correct some geometry issues with the valve train, you know, do I need a different push rod? Uh, do I need to tip valves? It's going to help with recession. Well, it, it would help with the adjustment on the rocker arms, but like the valve recession and so forth, you, you might have another issue because piston height is so critical. So if you go adding the thicker head gasket, you increase the whole volumetric area around that cylinder. And in essence, maybe if you were already at minimum piston height, your specs 14 to 19, I'm at 14, but I resurfaced the head and I'm gonna put a 10 thicker gasket on, well, you just stole a bunch of compression ratio. So in a diesel, that's a very bad thing. In the gas, that's exactly what you're looking for. You wanna get that back because you cut away the, the combustion chamber of the cylinder head. So you just really have to think of it from that standpoint, the piston height, the total compression ratio. And we'll talk a little bit more. You know, we talked about compression ratio in the last uh, podcast. And we'll have a little bit of discussion with that in uh, the session here with Dan. Um, it's, it's really, really important to know where you're at. That way, you know where you can go. <laughs> And to give our listeners, you know, we, we probably got some new listeners, Chuck, and I should have done this at the beginning, but I didn't. But I'll just kind of introduce ourselves to like what we do at AERA. Like, like for me, like <clears throat> I kind of jack of all trades there. I've, you've probably forgotten more than I'll ever know. So that's why I ask the tech questions and you answer them because you're the smart guy. So, <laughs> so I kind of do all that at AERA. Chuck's really our senior or our... Uh, he runs our tech department there, so if you want to just kind of give a little bit about what you do there. Yeah, so I guess I would be maybe more the mentor <laughs> in the in the situation that comes up because of, of my experiences. Uh, I've worked, worn a lot of different hats in the engine building industry, and it's always been more technical. Uh, less of a manager, more of a technical guy <laughs> is kind of where I'm happy, to be honest. So, you know, we're kind of fortunate here at AERA because everybody is, we're, we're all professionals and we all wear a lot of hats. And so uh, it's not like we're babysitting. <laughs> exactly. Which is great. <laughs> Alrighty. So that takes care of our tech questions. Um, and we're kind of just getting this uh, moving right along here because our our interview that we had with Dan a couple weeks ago was rather lengthy, so we want to make sure that our listeners get to listen to that. So uh, we'll jump right into our history. One thing that happened back on October 26 of 1954, a small block Chevrolet was actually introduced. The future of Chevrolet and of high-performance American cars is secured with the advent of the light and powerful. Do you know the first cubic inch they made? 265. 265 cubic inch Chevrolet was introduced in 1954. So we we often say that the flathead Ford, which we're going to be giving away at 
PRI this year. Yep. But we often say that revolutionized the performance aftermarket world, and it and it really did. But if you take a look at the small block Chevy, the fact that they built that thing so many years, there's so many things available for it. It just changed the performance dynamic. Whether you're a Chevy fan, a Ford fan, it does, you you have to give credit its due. It's like I always said, I hated the Detroit Lions growing up. You know, but uh, easy Detroit fans don't be Chuck doesn't come, live in Chicago, so don't come over there by me. <laughs> but but watching Barry Sanders run the ball, yeah, you know, you, you respect performance, right? Hey, just whether you like it or not, you respect it, and that's just that's the way it is. That you know, the small block Chevy, it garnered that respect. Yeah. Well, like we had mentioned before, um, or Chuck had mentioned earlier, we. We did an interview with Dan Begley from Molly, or Mala. Is that how they say it now? Mala, Molly. Yeah, if you talk to the Germans, they'll say you know, like Porsche, it's Mala, but it usually gets pronounced Molly by most people. <laughs> well, Dan, uh, he's going to give us a little history about himself, um, and then we're going to talk about engine analysis. Uh, plan when you do the teardown of the engine. Dan was very instrumental in doing that in the NASCAR world, and he's going to elaborate on that here a little bit. Uh, and then Chuck does a good interview of just kind of how to, when you get an engine in with a failure, how to kind of plan for that as you're tearing things down and making notes. Yeah, I'm going to use one of those uh, buzzword kind of things. It was a, a, a phrase that was stuck to like Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People and the habit of begin with the end in mind. And if you just think about that, hey, I know that the thing's coming to me. Let's get prepped to tear it down and, and learn something from it. Otherwise, you're just doing disassembly, right? So hopefully you can learn from it, whether it protects you from ever seeing it again or it helps you build the case as to why it's not your fault if it's a warranty. So... So enough of us, Gavin. Let's jump right into Dan here and see uh, what he's got to say about engine analysis plan during teardown. Hey, Dan. Welcome to the Engine Professional Podcast. Glad you could make some time for us. Uh, glad you're on. So... Welcome to the show. Uh, Steve, appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. I'm looking forward to this today. So are we, uh, talking about our topic of engine analysis uh, during teardown. But before we do that, why don't you give us a little history about yourself and how you got started in the industry? Sure, absolutely. Uh, so I used to work at Jasper Engines and Transmissions, and Jasper Engines decided they were getting into the racing. So one of the fun things I did was uh, I was in charge of diesel fuel injection, turbocharger, and blower room. So definitely not uh, the racing part of it, but I've, <laughs> I was involved in racing at, at an early age with a, a friend, and it was actually a, a guy I went to school with my brother, and he drug me around. I was too small to carry tires, but he drug me around just because he was uh, trying to be a, a good big brother to me, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but it was fun. We, it was, I still owe him a lot, but... Um, so Jasper got involved with racing, and I, I just wanted to i wanted to be involved in racing. I loved it, loved the noise, the competitiveness. Uh, and then I, I 
we had a hospitality so well, me and one of the guys from Jasper Engines, we would drive the hospitality to the racetrack, and I was so stoked because I got to hand out hot dogs and hamburgers and soft drinks to customers. <laughs> Meanwhile, I got to hear race cars, so uh, that's where we're kind of started. And then Jasper bought the the race team or an engine shop, not a race team at that point, uh, an engine shop. And the president of Jasper Engines, Doug Bobble, asked me if to when I was ready to move to the engine shop, and so I moved to the Georgia for four years and worked for uh, Jasper Engines down there and was start out porting heads, tearing down engines, cleaning parts, and just you know what I could to, to be involved. And uh, four years in Georgia, and then we moved the engine shop to Mooresville, North Carolina, and I stayed there for a couple more years and worked with Jasper Engines at their engine shop there. And at that point, there was I was just I grew and there were some opportunities and um, moved on to to Sabco Racing and I worked there for for several years and I ran the dyno. I was in charge of all the qualifying engines, which you know that's a whole nother story. Uh, uh, building these bullets that would run, you know, five ten <laughs> laps and it's like success. You know, we made five laps on this engine and the cam didn't come apart or something like that. <laughs> and, and then. Um, situations happen, buyouts and so forth. So uh, there was there was a point where the engine shop shut down at Sabco, bought, and it was bought by Chip Ganassi. And I decided I was going to go on my own, and I started building engines and did a lot of modifieds. Uh, did Arca engines, some well at that point it was Bush series. Well, it's Xfinity now, and. Uh, dirt late model stuff, which went back to my roots of, of what I did when I couldn't push the tires around anymore. <laughs> and I did that for four years on my own. It was some great successes. We won Talladega. Um, I had opportunity to beat Kyle Busch in a ARCA race. So that was a little story there, but it was fun. <laughs> and uh, I got a call one day from a guy that works for Robert Yates, and they asked me if I'd consider shutting my shop to come to work for them. And so I did. I shut my engine shop down and went to work for Robert Yates and uh, stayed there for, for 13 years. I was an en engine assembler for four, and about four years into my stint there, uh, Doug Yates came to me and they he basically took away my tools and said they want me to inspect parts so uh, I became the the post-race analysis and what I did was I inspected parts after the race and any validation parts was inspected uh, I was in charge of the non-destructive testing what parts go in engines uh, how long these parts can last to get a cycle count and then also every Thursday I would do a report and display a report to Doug, the engineering production, as far as the health of our engines. And we did that every Thursday at 3 o'clock. And I would do a PowerPoint presentation, and eventually I changed it to OneNote so I could keep track of, of years uh, from when you go from one racetrack and then the following year you come back and I could look back at those notes and to to determine what what was going on with the health of the engine and, and we would discuss it and what validation parts we had before they actually went to the racetrack from AVL testing and so is um, into 13 years there and then I came to work at Molly um, 
five years ago and now I'm in charge of the product development helping with designing new products supporting different production engine rebuilders uh, also all the performance engines and um, the technical sales engineer with Molly now to help uh, keep keep everybody out racing and keeping developing of new parts right now now one thing you you kind of mentioned in your history there was or your background was you had your own shop and then you closed it and went to Yates was that you were pretty successful at that time uh, owning your own shop was it hard to do that or was it kind of yeah, yeah see that's that's there there's parts I I, I so miss it I, be honest um, <coughs> excuse me and but the the real is I remember standing in and 9-11 happened and at that point the everybody wanted to race but the the, the sponsor money was there and it got to a point uh, where there the people just weren't paying their bills and you know, I'm a family man and I'm looking trying to carry a, a used camshaft to the grocery store to, to feed my kids and you know they just didn't go for that so they, they, didn't, they didn't take that so I it it was just a great timing uh, there was there was it was a, a chapter in my my life that I learned so much to be independent and to do that learn from the business side of it which was a you know carries on with you and what you do uh, but but it was it was time and then to go work for Robert Yates uh, the first engine I built when I went there Robert said all right I want to teach you how to build an engine and I looked around we didn't have a workbench so I thought wow this is gonna be interesting <clears throat> so I he said go over there and get that folding card table so I go over and get this folding <laughs> card table me and Robert Yates are building an engine on this bouncy folding card table and that's my first experience <laughs> with Robert Yates so it's kind of fun <laughs> That's a great story. <clears throat> so, kind of there at the at the end, uh, you were talking about doing the uh, reliability um, engineering for Yates. And so, to be honest, you know, we've had this conversation um, a few times, and that's kind of what uh, gave the idea to to do this particular podcast that we could talk about a plan. If you're going to do an engine analysis, uh, a teardown, whatever jargon we want to use, disassembly, I think uh, teardown is seen uh, as guerrilla to some people, right? You know, you just grab and start ripping parts apart. So the term disassembly is probably <laughs> maybe a, a little better received, perceived. But anyway, we're going to get this thing apart. And we're going to inspect some parts. Yeah. So, uh, you know, how do we do that? How do, where do we start? Yeah, well, well, I, I think you hit the nail on the head there. You know, it's it's perceived, and 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 the worst is let's rip it apart, right? So you know, they just <laughs> stuff's flying. But you know, I, I think that everything you know, we had different classifications at Roush Yates, and I helped establish those um, what we would call a, a checklist of what you do, and and different engines based off of the car or where the car finished uh, are random would get a, go, more attention to detail than some of the others where we we technically did because we needed the parts and uh, the, the one thing on the NASCAR is, is a lot of those engines are they're in they're in a rotation so and we raced every week so if you had a grouping of engines come back uh, let's say for instance for you had 22 engines that came back from all the series whatever and those were in a rotation 
and you had to get them done completed and out the door in, from the teardown area because I was in charge of teardown as well I was in charge of non-destructive testing so I had to schedule it all the way through you had to get those engines apart because next Sunday you're racing again and then you got another load of engines and another you know might be a different week you may have 18 engines that week well you had to get those apart cleaned up out the door so you're in a repeat cycle because those they were on a rotations so uh, what what we did is is when you had your your biggest engines the engines that you you were seriously concerned about whether it was a, a one of the top cars a top finish or a, some validation parts in the the engine those would get a different treatment as far as what you would look at when you can't part and uh, so you know, we come in and first of all you always look is is there anything out externally obvious that is not right you know when you take off the clutch um, you know is there is there something you know there was there's an old saying that uh, stuck with me if it if it doesn't look right it's probably not right and you know that that stuck to it if something didn't look right stop you know get some else look at it. It, it is this right or you know let's let's talk about it be before we get too far into taking it apart that we have ruined our evidence of what happened so but you know just the, the initial outsides of of looking at it then if that engine we'll go with the the top engines uh we we would sit there and get get the engine mounted up on a teardown stand and run leak lash we'd always want to make sure that the the leak down was good there was nothing weird uh, lash so we could see where the cam was if, if all the lash everything would be good in bell train uh, we would also run a because we knew what the camshaft was when it left we would always run a lift at top dead center also so we see because on on some engines if you run a belt drive or something like that uh, or or you have gear wear whatever the case may be you, you, you need to on a performance engine we always want to know well where did that engine where did that camshaft end up at at the end of the race how much belt stretch are we getting you know what what is where do we need to adjust that pre-race so it at the end of the race when you're trying to get the checkered flag uh, it, it's where it, it's optimized where it needs to be so those are the even before it's is tore down there's there's a lot of inspections done on it right right go into it with a plan right <clears throat> and i think that's you know the the message that you know we always try to share if it's something if it's not just a a core that you're going to tear tear down just to get the parts out of it um you have no intention of knowing anything about this other than it's spare parts and pieces right right but but yeah if it's something that either if you're not a performance person if it's something that you have to stand behind you need to have a plan if that thing comes to you and and kind of look at uh you know why are you looking at it in the first place you have to ask you know, what was the complaint so uh things like you mentioned leak and lash so leaking down of of the cylinders you know tells the health of the engine um if in the you know the general base of guys who are working on some of their own stuff it again not have to be performance uh, you may do crank and compression and leak down because 
one will tell you one thing and the other tells you something but together they tell you a lot correct you know, if you if you have the opportunity say if you hydraulic the cylinder and you bent a rod um, you could actually have compressed it enough that everything stayed pretty straight as far as ring alignment in the bore that they don't leak terrible but I have seven cylinders for some reason that have uh, or I have eight cylinders that have really good leak down but one cylinder isn't making compression so what's that tell me you know hmm, there, there's still something wrong here I got a short rod or whatever I mean you could find that in a in a build but in a teardown um, but yeah I, I found interesting that you were saying you'd always do the, the leak and lash yeah so. and, and it, it's it's I always found it to be neat because if you get those numbers and then you're then you you're why does this cylinder not look right well obviously at that point you can pinpoint it it, it helps you to determine where you're looking at and okay like you said you know maybe rings or uh, there's something went through the valve seat because it's coming out there and and you've kind of helped identify the cylinder and you've kind of narrowed it down the scope of I really need to look at this cylinder because there's something not happy and it's not like the other cylinders on the engine so what is it so you've you can use as a tool to of where how much effort you want to put in that cylinder to figure out what's wrong with it and what's going on right because i mean whether we say we're going to do this and it's different in a production environment even like the the cup teams you probably you need to record that because the people that are going to influence it may be in different areas that don't get an opportunity to see that so i had high leak down on number seven cylinder like you said it had something that went through the seat or whatever but it gives you the opportunity to say, what, it, what if anything do I do to take care of this in my f other processes upstream? Well, I mean, if it just ingested some dirt or whatever, well, maybe I got to work on the ability for it to ingest dirt. Um, I got to fix that. But again, it gives you an opportunity to, like Stephen Covey says, begin with the end in mind uh, so I can kind of plan to take care of this problem for the for the future and you can use that in any shop it doesn't have to be a, you know the pinnacle a nascar shop or something like that it's it can be any shop you can gain from this stuff that you see in your disassembly yeah data is king the more you can get the the better you are uh the better opportunities you have to look to to build a better product as it comes back out the door so you know, and, and like I said, some no one, in, you know, in in our case, we had different departments. So I was in charge of the post race analysis. I was in charge of tear down and and non destructive testing. Uh, notice I didn't say cylinder heads. So we had a guy in charge of cylinder heads. So when I'd see that, I would I would tell him the information. It's like, hey, you know, this this engine here is high, some high leak down, and you know, we notably see it on intake or exhaust or whatever it might be and you know that that launches you into what he's looking for when he's when he's redoing the seats on there it's like did what's what is wrong with the seat is is the was it was it debris as you mentioned or you know in some cases that did, did the seat move uh, and okay what's the history here with this with the cylinder head and did you know did we replace the seats last time and they they settle 
uh, you know, there it, it again, it's it's the data you you want to to give out. So that way, whether it's a smaller shop and you're doing it all yourself to look at, or it's a bigger shop and you have a cylinder head guy, you know, those are those are important information to to feed them to really pay attention to that particular cylinder or you know chamber or whatever it might be of what what was going on. You've mentioned non-destructive testing uh, a few different times. So in your world, I know that that got into probably uh, like Zyglo testing or the Magnaflux. You know, that's a generically used term that, so you like the wet flux system where you yes. put the cranks in and under black light and so forth. So I just wanted to kind of throw a little blurb in there that you know, non-destructive testing means that you don't have to cut it into pieces to evaluate it like a micro hardness test or, the key, or whatever the case may be. The, the key the key there is non-destructive. You want to be able to use the part again <laughs> and you want to determine that the part is usable. Uh, I was, when in my earlier career, I, I, I ran the NDT, I ran the, the Magnaflux machine and I didn't know. I, I've learned later on in life. I didn't know what I was really doing because of, you know the different currents and where how you shoot it. So I was very fortunate in the time there. I got to work with a guy who was a, a chief in the Navy, and he taught NDT to the all, all the the people coming in that want to do it. And he he inspected submarines. Now to me, that's kind of a big deal. If, you know, if I'm going to sit in a submarine and go underwater under that much pressure I, I want to make sure that my submarine is not cracked and he was the guy who signed off on it so uh, I, I was extremely fortunate to work with him and learn so much stuff about the the, the NDT and and the criterias and so forth like that and uh, it, that was a that was a wonderful asset to have and and I, I've learned a, a lot from him just on uh, porosity and and what's acceptable and what's not so you know for if, if you're looking into it you know it, uh, you know I encourage everybody it's to understand what that is and and sometimes you know if you get prosty and, and in a line and is different than prosty scattered around uh, there's standards for that and and it determines whether that part is usable or not and that's that's what I took away from it it was it was a huge asset and help me understand right that understanding is is huge and actually you and i probably run some of the same equipment from when it was at the race shop slash aircraft engine shop uh for the the wet flux stuff but you know i've learned a lot um got some good training on on that and the things like the the particle distribution in your solution uh the ketose ring what's my amount of penetration um into the part you know with my magnetic fluxes and so forth and you're like well what's that matter just magnetize it right make the stuff stick to it and they'll go to it but it's not really that easily because you can do so much magnetism that you start seeing subsurface discontinuities casting lines forging lines that don't matter that will send you on a goose chase and if you don't understand that well everything's junk right it all sure. looks like junk it so you have to understand junk. what those indications are telling you and uh ndt um well specifically like crack detection like that is is uh it's a science in itself just about 
Absolutely. You know, we had to maintain the agitation of the solution uh, or else you got metal particles floating in a carrier like kerosene or some animal fat solution or whatever. And the heavy parts precipitate out. They sink to the bottom and then you're just spraying oil on it. So yeah. then you catch nothing. So yeah, it's it's quite the science. All, all of a sudden, everything looks good. You know, and to go with that, you you mentioned magnetism. There was a lot of times we would get new parts, and you know, new is good, right? Not always. We all know the we all know the rest <laughs> of that story. Uh, but there was there was a lot of times when we would get new parts, and and one of our criteria was to check them for magnetism, because they would get shipped in a box, and the whole all of them would be. They would have some magnetism in there. Okay, now you know that's not really cool to go put a uh, magnetic part that's not supposed to be magnetic in in an engine, and we would we would have to go through and one of the tests we would do on incoming was was to check for magnetism. And what that was was when the parts were inspected at the facility, uh, they were never properly demagged, and you just think, oh, it's new, it's good, just you know take it out, clean it up, do what you know this and that, but not realizing now now you've you've have a, a metal component and if you have to do some machining or you set it somewhere you know now you're now you're picking up metal debris onto that component and you're inducing it into your engine now you just made a uh, my number one failure mode on engine bearings is is debris right you just introduced it by a magnetic component because it wasn't demag properly yeah we actually did a podcast on that subject and so the point to the listeners here is, you know, there are some specs that are pretty loose from the OEs, you know, like this big cat crank allows 15 gauss or whatever. The thing is, we don't live in that sanitary environment that the OEs do. Uh, we introduce the opportunity for something to stick to it. So I always share the rule of, you know, plus or minus two gauss. It's polar. So you're going to have a positive or negative, any, any magnet. So plus or minus two gauss, you can buy a gauss gauge fairly inexpensively. I think they're less than 30 bucks. You can get them on Amazon. You can get them through any uh, gauge supply house, calibration labs, and so forth. It's an inexpensive tool, and and you can find that stuff. So you have connecting rods that grow fuzz. Well, you might be, want to be looking for that. And things like connecting rods, they can even cancel themselves out because maybe the the beam is positive and the cap is negative. You put the two together and it goes to zero, but the two individual components might have an issue. So it is a really unique phenomenon that goes on in the engine because the engine can induce it too. When you have a heat impact, you know, the, the hammering, the major thrust axis, you got something unhappy in the engine or like properly grounded or whatnot. So, you know, it's funny what we might hit in a topic in discussion here, but if you're looking for abrasive material, in an engine when you're doing a, a failure analysis. Why did this thing chew up this this bearing? Well, maybe it's a situation where we had some uh, magnetism induced in that part and it just decided to pick on that one more. Why did, it, why did that same debris not hurt other places in the engine? Right, right. Yeah, yeah well, I, I remember some cases we had connecting rods and we were putting the rods and and the cap didn't want to go on the rod because they were they were magnetized and they kept pushing it away. It's like oh, that's crazy. So it, it can be that extreme. That was a new part. So uh, what about 
fasteners, torques, things of that nature. Did you prescribe to any uh, any standardized process there, like pull-up torques? You know, you mark everything and then you break it away and you pull it back up to that mark. Or I know it's a little bit more difficult in the modern era with torque to yield fasteners because you you stretched it on purpose. It's never going to return to that original point so it's a little bit hard to do pull-up torques with the torque to yield but I'm sure you used a lot of fasteners that were not torque plus angle or maybe right. they all were no most most fires were torque to you know which was a simple torque number uh, you know, what we did what we came up with is everything that was uh, obviously not oil pan bolts and so forth but uh, was was a breakaway torque we we want to. We recorded all the breakaway torques on the on the major components of rods, uh, mains, heads, everything. Like, you know, the the major fasteners was was simply a documented breakaway, and <clears throat> we knowing what you could you could see the trend if <clears throat> because a, a cylinder head, for instance, you would see some that would the, some areas the breakaway was always a little bit less than other areas. And we we knew that because that was established that this it's that's going to happen, um, but you know we everything we did we was a breakaway with a, a dial torque wrench and we would just record it of what it was and and somebody would document that was down. And then all the the other fasteners of, of the engines that we spent a lot of time with were broke loose you know wrench speed handle something like that so you could actually get the feel and. You, you know, it's because if you if you put an impact gun on there, it's it's going to come off one way or another. Uh, if not, get a bigger <laughs> impact gun. That's so. Uh, but you know, again, it's to to not just to 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 disassemble it. Now, in, in if, again, as as you point to Chuck, if if you're just taking the engine apart to get parts out of it, or to you know, there's no value to it. You know, that's that's a different story. But if you're truly trying to to get some, you know, how, what is the health of this engine? How how is this thing coming back? What's what's happening? You know, that's it's good to we we just simply did a breakaway. Okay, yeah, I know that one of the things. I mean, if you have suspicion that some an engine hurt a head gasket, one of the things to do take some carb cleaner, clean up the head bolts, take you a paint marker or whatever, and mark the bolt and then to the casting and break it away and then do and pull it back up so if it's supposed to be 65 foot pounds ultimate it should be pretty close to that you know you can make those lines repeat come back together um, oftentimes when you've had a blown head gasket and you've had so much expansion that it just crushes the gasket you'll find that that bolt might turn another quarter turn half turn it's really really good data that comes from that if you just it's probably going to break away low anyway because you crushed the gasket and now I, I have space. But if you want to audit even something that looks pretty good, maybe you're not suspicious that it's got a, a you know, a smashed head gasket, then when you do the pull-ups, it can, if it those lines line back up and then you use like a dial torque wrench, it's a really good indication. Yeah, this thing was... It was maybe we need to look at torque wrench calibration every one of them says they're 75 pounds and the spec 65 or 
everyone's at 55 or something. So yeah, there's some great tools to use along the way. Yeah, you know, a couple of things go along with that. There was, uh, I gotta be careful how I say this because I don't want to incriminate anybody, but there, there was particular engines that we knew who built the engine based off of how the, the breakaways would be. And as, as I got involved into it, there was, you could see the, the use, the, the way that individual used his torque wrench rather than a steady pull was more of a sling. And we always knew his engines when they came back, the breakaways were going to be extremely high. Um, you know, to some point of almost destroying stuff to get apart because of, you know, Loctite or whatever on it. And it, it kind of came down to the, the assembly of proper use of the of the torque wrench instead of pulling the nice stay pull, uh, you know, sling and, and click and you, you know, you're past it. Uh, it, it was, it was kind of frustrating. The other thing that, that brings to mind is we, we had an issue one time on, on our engines, we had a aluminum oil pan, but NASCAR stated you had to have a steel oil pan. So, uh, no, we weren't cheating. Uh, it was completely legal. Uh, we had to put a steel covering over. It was a 40,000 steel uh, covering over the aluminum, so it became an oil pan. Uh, it was just folded. It, it wouldn't hold oil, uh, but that was not really its purpose. The rule stated it had to be steel. Everybody did it. So, uh in saying that the fasteners that held the mains on we had we had an issue where the the studs would were backing out and literally backing out on we had some back out on the dyno we get back from the racetrack and you we would see studs that were bouncing around in that false pan because it was a truly a false pan like the the outer studs or i'm sorry the outer bolts were were um they were just dancing around and you would see a nut off the main stud that was down up against the oil pan and and it was just it couldn't come out because of the the spacing and the stud and you know we we're like what the heck happened and you come find out you know the the when the person was putting it together he he changed the what the lubrication that was on the threads and it became so slick that we would we were losing main studs in some cases on the dyno simply for the fact that the wrong lubrication was used on the threads. I don't think we're going to get into this whole um, fastener story right now, but it's just a case story right there of, of how important that is. And, and you, we saw it on teardown as, you know, as soon as they came back in. Again, if it doesn't seem right, it's probably not right. Well, if your studs or your um, main bolts are dancing around in an oil pan or missing, that's not right. So <laughs> then to figure out what it was is simply someone decided to it was easier just to use this loop than what was supposed to be used and it made that much of a difference yeah without getting into fasteners too much but lubrication is super important uh and you'll find that some of that stuff like the micro or false burnelling under fastener flanges and so forth so you probably never achieved the clamping force you wanted to the stuff welding itself together but you can go too far the other way i've done that get something that's got such a coefficient of friction that now the fastener can't handle the load or the part the block or so you strip out bolts in the block right so so making sure you're consistent with your lubrication because there are some super slippery lubrications out there that 
you have to be cautious of just because it is you know it's specced out for the performance world or whatever it doesn't fit every application or you better do some testing clamp force testing so forth but like say if you got a the vibration and then say if that nut doesn't have a big flange area so i've i've resolved the friction so exactly. what you're going to do vibration is going to make it come apart so yeah good point so if you built the engine um do you have the original recorded measurements that you're going to refer back to in a situation like that yeah it, very very much so you know we're very fortunate because as as we built the engines they would all go to either one or two tracks uh you know all the cup cars went to this track sometimes xfinity went to a different track or sometimes the same but regardless you knew the grouping of what spec they were built to so you knew all right all these engines were uh were this spec so the cam should be here uh, you, the lash should be here you kind of knew as a grouping but uh the answer is yes because we knew that build sheet and all the engines were built the same so if something stood out that it was different it, it, it became apparent like why is this one guy different than the other guys so uh, you know the knowing knowing how it was built if, if it's an engine that you're getting back in the customer's getting back in to build it's like when i build it this way i did so when it comes back how much how much difference is there and that's where uh, as i made mention earlier checking cam timing on when it came back just you know we record a tdc number and so you didn't have to mount up a degree wheel and and do all that you just basically roll it the engine over and load it and and bring it up to tdc on the balancer and say okay this is my lift at tdc and where did it compare to when it left here and how much stretch did i get on my my timing components and how much it alters so uh you know every, everything is we based everything off of the bill because it, if, if it's you want the engine to be run as good at the end as it as, or as good as you can at the end and in our case we want it to be the same at the end as what it was when it left if not in in most cases they actually ran better uh which is the you know the the grand prize right there because you want to give your best going for the 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 checkered flag so but knowing knowing what's in there how you build it what the specs were and then comparing them is is, is a huge tool so that in essence it allows you to audit like i said you know you were talking about that that fastener example okay this allows me to audit the processes and you know there's man method machine and man's that constant variable so you know, so you're sometimes able to uh point out those discrepancies and and hopefully get them addressed um sometimes ego gets in the way uh, another another friend of mine who is still in the nascar world he's like man he goes we just have a, such a problem with people who like to fluff and buff, and it's hard to to uh, get people to say, you know, okay, everybody does this. Say it's ring gapping. I'm just making this up. You know, it's ring gapping, so that everybody deburs the same way. Because if you start making that ring end gap look like a bird's beak, now you have more leakage. So in your efforts to make it maybe not make a scratch, you might increase leakage. So. Yeah, it's about process, 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 right? It is, and and I think you see that with 
you know, Chuck, me and you have had the opportunity to go to several engine shops together and my experience, but, you know, getting consistency is, is where you make gains at because if you, if somebody's doing something different, it's, it may help, it may hinder, but if the person doesn't know what the change is and we went through through that or you know everybody put on their cowboy hat and they were going to cowboy it up and and put their little touch on it and at the end of the day it's like when they come back when when the engine's dynoed or something like that it's like why is this one different than that one they're built exactly the same well you know i don't know i have no idea no one no one knows the answer until you finally take those variables out of the equation and and then if it's consistent the engines end up being very consistent and how they leave and then you can start making your changes because you have consistency and you can start saying well this is where it is now I can make a change in this area and see if it works because I have enough consistent data yeah, and it goes to I've actually written on this um, we see the the term R&R &R, re, repair and return remove reinstall but it really is kind of come from the gauging world and it's repeatability reproducibility right and right. that's the thing get the process that whether you know jimmy or john does it or whomever it, it's going to have the same yield and the repeatability part like if i take a mic and i mic a piston pin and i mic it three times and i get the same reading that's repeatability right but if I take that piston pin and I hand it to Dan or Steve and they mic it and they get the same reading I did and they don't, you know, you, you can't let them know what I had so they don't search for sure. that. But anyway, if everybody gets the same measurement, that's your reproducibility part. That's the goal. That is the goal. Correct. Exactly. So as, as we do these analysis, um, I think even it's easy today because everyone walks around with a freaking computer with a a terrific uh, camera, magnifier, everything on it, and our cell phone. But that's a huge thing. Um, you know, I'm sure that you've been through all the progression of having, you know, just a jeweler's loop magnifying glass to a stationary, you know, high mag, high res camera and so forth. Um, so thoughts on that? I mean, did you keep a kind of a, a Pictionary <laughs> of, <laughs> of what was going on. I, I did. We got, you know, years ago, not everybody, I, I hate to date myself this bad, but, you know, at some point I, I got my first cell phone and, and then it was, you know, working there, it was taboo to take a picture on your personal device that you could, you know, do whatever with. So, you know, th there was a lot of, you know, it's it's changed. I, I go and I know Chuck, you do too, Steve. You guys walk around and people will, hey, I got this question, and they'll they'll scroll through their phone and there's you know ten thousand two hundred eighty five pictures in there, and uh, they're looking for that one picture that they want to show you because there's so much value to that, and you know I think it's I think it's super cool um, to do that. But you know back when there wasn't the cameras we have, I, I remember we we found this camera at Walmart or something like that because it's right down the street and and I I went and looked and there was these 
the the large magnifying lenses and I, I've learned that if you you can stack one of these magnifying lens to the front of the camera and you can make a zoom lens a, a micro was a macro lens out of this zoom in front of the camera and it, sometimes it took two people to get it, it all in focus because you're trying to focus the focus and focus through the magnifier and download it in there so we were we we were pretty creative on how we did that and then uh, I ended up finding that this adapter kit that you could screw these magnifications and you could stack them together so you take a two and then a six and an eight and you stack it together and you would come up with you know X magnifications but you know we, we document way back as soon as as soon as we could access something that was digital to to put into computer and and keep the records to you know, make a file uh, and then break the files down so you could you could find what you're looking for you know as I, as I made mentioned earlier you know one of the things we did was was on PowerPoint PowerPoint was good is a good way to present when I did it but uh, once I started switching to, to one note I can make tabs you know based off of a, a customer I can make tabs based off of tracks uh, you know type of engine whatever it might be and you can just download all those pictures into that that file and, and it was it made it super clean to go back to search for those those pictures based off of the type of engine or type of track that you were looking for so absolutely you know I one of the other things I I didn't really mention is is when I did the post race uh, we we would keep our our parts we would keep them in what we call the library for basically a year I would keep the parts and if there was any failures then th those parts would stay longer but every time there was a failure before those parts were discarded because you only you have limited space and uh, the really bad failures they stayed for many many years if not always but the other ones that were you know not as bad and we and we figured out what happened and, and, and as bad as it sounds we may have had a couple of those failures so we really nailed down what it was you know the photo library photo library of keeping that so you can look at it and the data of, of what it really looked like when it came back because you know we, we get so much on our plate and eventually we just forget what things look like or what we did and you know a couple of years like oh, I remember that you know we all have those aha moments that we um, remember something from way back when when someone brings up something similar to that so being able to have that resource is, is absolutely huge and a way of properly filing it so you can find that when you when you want to dig up that data yeah you know, again, you said it earlier, data is key. Um, you don't want to have analysis paralysis, as they say. I mean, but so sometimes you, you accumulate so much information, data, and whatnot. Okay, where's that? How do I find it? And then trying to to organize yourself. You said you switched to from the just putting them in PowerPoints to put it in OneNote where it gives you opportunity to make quicker reference headers and things of that nature. Right. And, and that's important too because if it's not easy to follow you won't do it it's it's something that you're just doing it because somebody told you you had to do it right you know I, I just I record this but I don't ever go back on one. the the so. one the one thing is uh, that I've always you do a good job recording pictures like oh yeah I remember that you know and you and you follow that picture away and then later on in life you're you get that picture back out and it's like what were the details about that 
because you put the picture in there, but you know, we're all in a hurry. And I remember what that is. I'll remember that. Well, two years, five years later, X engines later, it's like, I see the picture, but you, you can't remember all the details. And, you know, uh, I honestly, I'm still bad about that. I, I think I'll remember it. And next thing I know, I, now it's life's busier so now it now it only lasts a couple of weeks and i forgot what i'm supposed to do so you know it's it's recording and, and then also you know put in put in the case scenario of what happened in, behind a picture because later in life you you won't remember exactly all the details as you did that day yeah i actually re- in the past couple of years i i signed up for one of those google drive slash photo things and buy space Mm-hmm. and it organizes by date when it was saved and you can put notes in there easily and so forth and that's one of my little cheats so when I talk about oh we were out so and so and I find them really quick because you can word search it too I just thought so you were that it, smart Chuck <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm too, what year is this again <laughs> yeah yeah. so um, kind of at, at the end of this you know maybe wrapping up a little bit um, as we went down through kind of these points, um, I think that everyone can take something away, whether, again, if you're, if you're building race engines and the engine comes to you and it's hurt and you're going to tear into it, the rip into it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, if you're going to make stuff start flying, um, you, you kind of have this need for some feedback from the owner user the operator the race car driver or whatever he's going to have had some complaint so i think it's important that we use that as our guide if we're going to go into this engine and his complaints a knock and it, the easiest thing to do is yank the heads off and look at the valve stem seals well, yeah it was consuming oil so it was it was detonating and that's where the knock came from and you don't really get to root cause uh i think it's you know it's so important to say okay do the customer complaints driver complaints support my analysis if the two can't be linked back together you know if something you know to the point if something doesn't look right it's probably not right but when we know some there's a complaint and we don't look deep enough because of time i just want to pacify someone especially you know if it's a one-man shop it's all on his back sometimes when we're a part of an organization corporation whatever it's it's just about my time slot in the day are we getting the right information if if we're not going to get to the root cause then it should just be a tear down and not a disassembly just rip it apart throw the pieces to the different directions because we're not going to utilize that information to make us better anyway right, right. because you were talking about your your test parts test components or the ndt or something none of that matters if we're not going to take this opportunity to come away with something positive a good evaluation of all the parts and pieces let them tell me their tale because they do speak to you and if the customer complaint doesn't jive, you're probably barking up the wrong tree. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you, you have to listen to feedback, and and also on the same token, you, you know, again, my world, um, 
you you realize that not everybody's an engine guy, so they're you you have to sift through the feedback and as an engine person, kind of like, well, that doesn't make sense, and this does, and and how how they could think. So you kind of have to you know filter through that. But absolutely, when you when you get feedback of uh, positive and negative feedback, uh, you know. It's worth uh, in investing into why and trying to the root cause, uh, so you don't repeat it. You know, and you mentioned valve guide seals. Is like, you know, why is that valve guide seal? Is did was there, was there is there something wrong with the springs? Is was there is there an RPM? Are are we too tight on um, because we we change vendors and and this. A retainer is is too close did we change seals you know all those things are, are key you know especially at the way things are going right now in the in the industry and being um, in the industry of of parts uh, some you know I hear a lot and and sometimes there's changes made and the customer isn't aware it's, it's the same part supposedly but it's really not and is that really you know, is is there something going on there? What changed and and breaking that down? But yeah, you're you're spot on in in trying to link link those together as far as what the complaint or is there a complaint? Right now in the world, yeah, quite the challenge. Uh, Steve and I did a podcast on the incoming parts inspection, and you know, what were you getting? You know, because you know, one of the the mala phrases is form fit function right and you look at you know form fit function but the underlying architecture it looks the same it fits the same it this the function this is a bearing this is a gasket or whatever but the the architecture is different but the dna is different you know if you were to like a valve stem seal going back on that um simply not all floor elastomers are compositioned exactly the same. I've been down this road before, uh, dealt with a, a company that if um, Teflon is such a slippery product, because you got Teflon lay down lip seals. So a company that made Teflon lay down lip seals also made floor elastomer or elastomer or Viton seals, you know, that just right. industry jargons. Hmm, what if we were to blend some Teflon into our floor elastomer. Just imagine the heat that that thing could handle. It's got great lubricity, but this thing would probably last forever. What's one thing about Teflon? Once it lays down, takes a compression set, that's what it is, right? Right. So if you mix that with an elastomer, now the elastomer picks up some of the traits. And so the seal works for about two or three heat cycles, and now it's rigid. And it's a scraper. Well, in the modern world of, we got turbochargers on everything, and so we go high. We have high boost pressure. Then we can, under certain pressures, we will overcome. You get the Venturi effect. You're back to vacuum at that signal. So you may be sucking tons of oil in, or or pushing it up the guide. There's just so many opportunities that. Uh, we really need to know and understand this stuff and it, it's more of a challenge so the engine builder he has to be proficient at so many things um and especially right now there was a book many years ago called the world is 
flattening, you know, the flattening of the world, the world is flat or whatever. And it's so true because we we encompass the globe, you know, certain things are hard to manufacture cost-wise, so we use different regions of the globe to get some cost benefit, right? And maybe they aren't knowing of what every part goes through because it's similar to a part that they make and and they have that within their wheelhouse to produce the size shape but do they understand the function and architecture of it the dna of it right yeah it's it sounds good in paper until the practical and you're unfortunately some people end up with with those parts and that's how they're figuring out that it doesn't work so no very true I think you know once once you get the the, the engine apart, uh, you know a lot of the times we, we we looked at the data taking the engine apart that was very important, collected that but then you know, the the simple thing of, of laying the engine out I say simple it's it takes time it's not it's not simple it's just the task of doing it, it you know, again as a bearing guy I spent a lot of time looking at bearings that's kind of how I part of my how I got my job with Molly, um, and laying the bearings out and analyzing as they set in the engine, you know what's going on, what what you know I I, I say I'll say this parts parts don't lie you just you know they're telling you a story you just need to know what they're telling you, and that takes time to do it but you know we had I would have 20 sets of main bearings laying across a table an inspection table that I would look at and you know to to come up with are our oral clearances right uh, main bearing clearances right what kind of wear what kind of um, fatiguing are we getting on the bearings uh, you know I look at ring ring grooves and how much wear are we getting in ring grooves that would affect you know you can you can leak down an engine and get a good number but you still doesn't mean you have really nice ring lands uh, once you get the cylinder pressure of some of these engines uh, you know how much sealing are you actually getting is an operating temperature operating conditions uh, you know what's going on you know looking at piston, pistons you know tell you a lot about the, the what's happening on the combustion side are you getting are you getting some pitting and some pre-ignition detonation things like going on you know and I basically I spent the majority of the week uh, I had people that would do the tear down and hand me the reports and then the rest of the time was me inspecting the components there was as much time if not more time spent on component inspections than there was everything else is looking at those parts and determining dampener o-rings dampener conditions are we dampening like we should be uh is, is you know there we have a lot of information on that too what's happening crankshafts and uh the, the the whatever kind of dampener it is 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 a fluid dampener obviously would not but uh any kind of you know rubber dampeners are what's going on we we found different tracks would be were significantly harder on dampeners and um, you know application are harder on others based off of what kind of frequency the crankshaft goes in um, you know there were there was a particular track uh, Texas and every time we came back from Texas it would break 
the legs off of the clutches. So we put all new clutches on, come back from Texas Speedway, and the, the frequency of that track, tire compound, whatever it may have been, I don't know. Uh, and it was like that when I, when I left, Texas would eat clutch housings. They would break. So, you know, you, you get these characteristics and, and, and you could find these and, and, you know, if it's, if it's a specific type of engine, you know, start making a, uh, a list of things that, you know, you're, you're seeing on this engine. And, and when you start seeing a trend of something, you know, then that, those would be the highlight areas that you want to start to look, what can we, what can we make improvements on? And, you know, contacting ARA, hey, is there people having these problems and and what do you what can I do to get better do you have any contacts on on this particular problem uh, because I'm seeing a trend of you know 20% of the engines come back have this exact same thing that's going on you know is is this common and and does anybody else have this problem what can I do to fix it uh, you know we weren't that fortunate where we could just uh, you know working at Roush Yates we couldn't call Hendrick Motorsports and say hey are you having the same problem <laughs> yeah. uh, but uh, you know we had to do our own internal and we had manufacturing support uh, it's one of the beauties of, of the big teams they have manufacturers and sometimes they were more willing to help than others based off of their workload or their everything but you know usually they were pretty good but some of the parts uh, it it, it didn't pertain to them. It, it did in the in the logo on the car, but not on the actual component because that component was sourced uh, or was manufactured by us. So you know, looking looking at analyzing the parts once the disassembly is done and, and taking the diligence to to actually see what's happening. I know I walk through shops and and I'm notorious I can't keep my hands off parts and I walk by there do you mind if I look at this and I look at it and I'll, I'll just start pointing things out to them it's like hey do you, do you see this this is what's happening here and you know it's help them to fix stuff you know that, those are the ones I'm there and Chuck I know you're Steve you guys are the same way you visit shops and you're always willing to help out and and help that but you know for the shops that we're not or other people are not you know if they're seeing the same trend uh, on, on a specific engine maybe it's self-induced maybe it's a part maybe it's inherited flaw of the engine uh, th those are the things that you, you reach out and you try to find out or communicate with others and try to find out so. yeah I think that's one of more, the more important things that we can do you know when we have the opportunity to get in the shops is is share those kind of little bits of information because a lot of times they they entice that guy to seek out more information. The same guys that are probably going to be listening to this podcast are looking. They're constantly searching, you know, and inputs dictate outputs. And if you don't evaluate the output and see if you need to change up the input, you're going to keep getting what you're getting. So I think is, you know, if we can give those little bits of information and help them put the puzzle together. Um, you know, I've had a lot of conversations uh, about uh, FEA, there's the the mindset sometimes this is going to answer everything, but if you don't ask the question, you're not going to get the answer from a computer, right? So if I don't know to ask to look for this specific thing in FEA, then I'm going I just won't get an output on it. You might get lucky because they they crossed over. I had some merger of information, but um, you know when 
when we try to rely on something like that, we totally can miss something. So if we evaluate the broken pieces that are going to come and then say, okay, where is it procedurally, materially, um, you know, whatever, um, then we can address this. So I, again, I think that engine analysis, failure analysis, whatever we want to refer to it is, is, is really, really key to our growth. If we want to grow, I mean, we probably learn more from the broken stuff through our careers than everything went right. You know, tiptoeing through the tulips or trudging through a hailstorm, you know, what do you remember from probably when you got hit in the head by a golf ball size hailstorm? Hail Those hurt the worst. <laughs> <laughs> and they hold the biggest scar. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. And it, it, there's always something to learn. And, uh, you know, no one looking at the parts to, to me like i said uh, the the majority of time and and the success that you know we we built was was knowing how the parts look when they came out of the engine to drive how the parts need to go to go into the engine because if you don't know if, if your parts aren't looking good out you you need to evaluate how you're putting them in or what you're putting in that's that's really what we came up with and and you know I, again i was fortunate with the being able to work on the development side and and validating new parts before with dynoing uh simulation dynoings all that stuff which basically is taking taking the risk factor of letting national television see your failures so <laughs> that's really what it's about um and and obviously endangering a driver or drivers and cars and etc but uh you know there's a there's a lot of stuff so you, you look at before it, it went we sent to the racetrack but the same thing can happen to everybody it's like you know if you need to look at the parts to make before you make a change and and, and what what's going wrong and what what you're seeing trends trends usually don't lie um, if it's if it's a specific engine or if it's a racing you know a specific type of track or whatever that might be you have to you have to know what you're what you're looking for and determine that well Dan I could sit here and talk to you all day uh, we've ridden around the country sometime talking for hours and hours but um, I know people have schedules to stick to um, so, Steve, you got anything else you want to throw at Dan? <laughs> no, nope, nope. You guys have pretty much covered it all. Um, Dan, appreciate you coming on. I think um, your your discussion today with Chuck, uh, everybody should learn something from this. Uh, you know, once they get that failure in their shop and uh, learn how to investigate it and make some notes, take some pictures, uh, and like you say, try to figure out what caused the failure. So uh, we appreciate your time. Uh, thanks for coming on, and uh, we'll definitely see you in a couple weeks. All right, that sounds good. Appreciate it, everyone. kind of how he laid out how in the NASCAR world he would make notes and take pictures and how important that is when you're doing engine disassembly of any kind of failure analysis.
Right, right. So having a toe tag on all the parts so you can identify it. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, keep track of the order. Um, you know, we I made mention of the toe tag so you can identify it. So that's a perfect opportunity to say where it was at. This, this rocker nut and ball was on number seven cylinder exhaust. Yep. You know, just that way you're like, hmm, now where was that? You know, if you go to the, go to the racetracks, like top fuel guys, uh, they've got trays made specifically for stuff to go in a very specific order. So just so they can do all that stuff much quicker. You may not do that in your shop. It probably doesn't make sense because you touch all kinds of stuff, but keep track of where you're at. Because uh, I said earlier, map doesn't do you much good if it doesn't have north, <laughs> south, east, or west. <laughs> map, heck, most of these kids nowadays, they just use that thing called a GPS. <laughs> GPS is pretty bad, too. Oh, it can be very bad, as we found out here recently. So <laughs> Make a left at the fork. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, his discussion actually kind of leads into our next episode where we're going to be talking about managing the warranty of an engine and how important that is correct steve that's again if you can plan for what's coming at you um, again it builds your case to defend yourself or make improvements in the future and you know i think all of us have been in a situation whether you're claiming filing warranty you have a warranty claim against yourself uh, you never want to be in the position where you're changing that part i remember buying a starter one time and trying it lasted about a week i take it back they give me another starter it lasted about a week and they're like well you, you got a lifetime warranty on it i'm like i don't want to spend the rest of my lifetime changing starters every week you know if i were to do that i would go work in a shop not in my own vehicles. <laughs> no, looking forward to it. I think it'll be a good tie-in, you know, with what mm -hmm. Dan has mentioned here. And you can definitely take some of those things that Dan has mentioned and use them if you have a warranty claim come in and try to figure out what the issue is or, or moving forward. <clears throat> Being the month of October, like we mentioned earlier, that only means the show season is shortly around the bend. So we will be exhibiting at the Apex and SEMA shows in Las Vegas from November 1st through the 4th. That's uh, Tuesday through Friday, I believe. And at Apex, we are booth number A is an Apple 4765 and SEMA is 23428. So there'll be a couple of our staff guys there, some techs. So if you are at the show, please stop by one of those booths and visit with us. We'll have some giveaways for our 100-year stuff we're giving away handing out uh, those types of things so uh, looking forward to it yeah and pr pri will not be far behind pri will not be winks and yeah no kidding it's like where'd the year go it's... all of a sudden we turn around and it's october almost what true, true. Old, it is october <laughs> see i don't even know what month we're in <laughs> so true so keep in mind actually to expand on this whole subject here we are going to have a panel as one of the presentations at PRI. Uh, Dan's going to be participating in that. 
uh, we've got some other other names of folks that are going to be in there. But since we're talking about this particular podcast, Dan's going to be involved in that. We're going to be doing a failure analysis uh, presentation. Uh, there's going to be an article coming up in PRI with some more details on that in the PRI, PRI magazine. So be on the lookout for that. And uh, we look forward to seeing everybody there. Absolutely. So if you have any questions or comments about our episodes or have some topics that you'd like Chuck and I to discuss, um, I know we mentioned it a lot, but we'd love to hear because we don't get out to the shops or, you know, talk to everybody every day. So if you have a topic that's come up in your shop that you'd like us to investigate or talk about, you know, or maybe we could use it in our tech question type segment in earlier in the show uh, where we could ask somebody ask the question and, and get an answer why we'd love to get some feedback or participation from our listeners so you can email us at eppodcast at aera.org well chuck that concludes another great episode of the podcast uh i gotta say as as we do these it becomes more and more fun i get more excited to do them so hope the feeling's mutual absolutely and i the feedback Coming from our listeners to loosen up was probably the best thing. Yep. You know, oh, this has got to be, you know, so refined. We got to get this stuff right. And in that effort, sometimes your nerves make you worse. Yep. So just loosen up and have fun because it's like talking to our friends and that's who's listening is our friends. Well, those couple shots I took before we start recording probably helps me loosen up a little bit. So. <laughs> <laughs> Aren't supposed to be drinking that hand sanitizer. That is. <laughs> All right, everybody. So we'll uh, look forward to that uh, episode next uh, next episode on warranties. And until uh, next time, Chuck. Bye.